Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast with your host, the Wolf and Action Jackson, who are keeping rock alive by talking classic rock, hard rock, progressive rock, heavy metal, 80s music, early MTV, UK vs. US chart success, and much more. This is the home of classic album and live concert reviews and your place for interviews with artists and legends. You're rocking with the Wolf. Hey, out there, rock and rollers. Welcome to episode number 166 of the Ugly American Werewolf in London Rock Podcast. Brought to you by me, your host, Mac B. the Wolf. And I will be joined, as usual, for my partner in crime from the East Coast of the United States of America, Gary Action Jackson. And I hope that you guys not only checked out our most recent Ugly American Werewolf in London show on Kiss's debut as it's turning 50, if you can believe that, but also our most recent first concert memories. It's our new monthly sidecast where we talk to someone about the first time they saw a particular band or artist and how it changed their life. And we were so happy to welcome Stephanie Myers of Stephanie and Stephanie Talk Tunes and also of the Song Facts podcast to talk about the first time she saw Meatloaf at the tender age of 13. The first of 13 times she would see him. She brought the passion. She was a lot of fun. We had a lot of laughs. It was a great episode. So if you missed it, I really do encourage you to go check it out. But this week, we have someone who has worked with all the greatest legends in the history of classic rock, that kind of British family tree of greatness that we talk about on the show from time to time. Yeah, he knows all those guys. He's worked with all of them. And in particular, Slowhand himself, or God, if you prefer, Mr. Eric Clapton. And that's guitar tech Lee Dixon, who's from Glasgow, Scotland, got down to London in the 60s, started working with rock bands and doing production stuff throughout the 70s, worked with Clapton once, and then at the end of 70s, when it was time for Clapton to move on, get a new band, and get a new crew, Lee started working with him, eventually became his technician, and was with him for 30 years. And if you think about it, all the amazing things that Clapton did during those 30 years from about 1979 or so to about 2009 or so. We're talking the arms concerts, live aid, the crossroads box set and journeyman tour, MTV unplugged movie soundtracks, the Bob Dylan concert, the crossroads concerts to benefit the crossroads center, the concert for George, the new cream reunion shows, the tour he did with Steve Winwood. Lee was there for every bit of that. And it's a shame that we really only have him for about an hour or so, because honestly, 
we could have talked to him forever. Now, hopefully we'll be able to get him back on. He's a funny guy. It's only my second time ever hanging out with him, but his stories are second to none. He's quite a character. He's got some great voices, and he doesn't really pull any punches. He's got great stories, not only about Eric, but about some of the biggest legends of all time. I'm talking about George Harrison and Jeff Beck, not to mention all the great people in his bands that he's played with over the years. And we're going to dive into just a little bit about his life on the road with Eric Clapton. Before we get to that, we got to take care of a little business. We love the fact that we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, a network of about 100 different shows. All music, not all rock and roll. There really is something in there for everyone. You can visit PantheonPodcast.com to learn more or follow on Pantheon Pods. And we love our sponsor, RareVinyl.com. They're based in the UK, folks, but they ship all around the world. They have over a quarter million items in stock, and they really have everything from LPs to CDs, singles, tour programs, ticket stubs, posters, point-of-sale stuff from record stores, all sorts of great treasures in amazing condition that you can find at rarevinyl.com. So go to Rare Vinyl, find something that you love, and then use code UGLY. You can save 10% off the entire order. That's only a one-time order. So don't think, okay, well, I'll get one album here this month, maybe a couple next month, a few. No, no. The code only works once. So buy all those things all at once, save 10% off all at once with the code UGLY, at rarevinyl.com now back to lee yes quite a character the kind of guy you'd meet at a pub and never want to walk away from because his stories are so vivid and he's got so many of them and he really does paint the picture of what it's like as life on the road everybody always thinks it's so great you always look at the rock stars perspective but you don't always look at the people who are making it happen the hard-working crew who maybe aren't on the private jets and staying at the four seasons but instead stay until four in the morning for the loadout and then driving all night to the next town but for our classic rock and guitar god fans you're gonna like this one jump in with us here this is guitar tech lee dixon who worked with eric clapton and many others talking about his career here on the wolf So welcome, finally, guitar tech extraordinaire and legend, Lee Dixon, to the ugly American werewolf in London. Uh, that's a pretty powerful intro. <laughs> um, all I can say is thank you very much. No, no, thank you. And, you know, as two guys who love music and have for a long time, see, I, it means a lot to me, but have no talent, really, to get as close as you have been to God, rock royalty, you'd have to call it, for so long. The stories you have must be unbelievable. <laughs> they, there are hundreds of great stories. And as we discussed over a beer a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. the, some of them can be told, but some of them would, uh, I don't want to get you guys banned from the world <laughs> of podcasting. Of course. <laughs> yeah, I've, I, it's, uh, it's been an amazing, uh, just, I mean, being with Eric for 30 plus years was just mind blowing. You know, the stuff I got to do, the people I got to meet. Mm -hmm. And all that kind of thing, meeting my heroes, meeting all of my heroes, hanging with them, you know. And, and we definitely want to hear about some of that. Why don't you tell our listeners, though, just a little bit about your beginnings, how you got into the business, and then maybe how it is you started to work for Slowhand. Coming from Glasgow, Scotland, which is was at the time a very sort of tough sort of industrial city and being the guy who always played the fool at school, you know, I, I know, didn't go to college or anything, but I had several friends who... Uh, drifted towards London to get into the music business, the touring business. Mm. And um, I'd noticed that a couple of years before, you know, that bands like 10 Years After and Jethro Tull and people were really becoming big in the States. The States were opening up, pre-Zeppelin and all that. Okay. 
And uh, I had buddies down in, in London. They were going, oh, man, you should get into this. It's great. So fast forward a bit. There's a very famous Scottish band called the Sensational Alex Harvey Band. Right. From the 70s. Alex was uh, just a consummate kind of theatrical frontman, friends of mine. I was very depressed. Uh, bass player's wife said, come and stay with us. Mm-hmm. So, and I owe this girl forever. I had a girlfriend at the time who was working in Holland and she knew how down I was about my situation. And she sent me, I don't know, 400 guilders or something, okay. which was just enough money to pay off the back rent, some money I owed to a guy. And I had 10 pounds left, which was the price of a ticket to London. Okay. <laughs> so it was literally, you know, small suitcase, shoulder bag and go. And yada, yada, yada. Fast forward. I went to work for a, a sound and PA company initially. Okay. And I was doing such incredibly interesting but diverse tours as as the Ramones. You know, one minute I'm out with the Ramones, next minute I'm out with Weather Report, okay. which was one of the most mind-blowing experiences of my musical life. Next thing I'm out with some guy called Gerald O'Sullivan, who was a kind of a quirky English pop. Yeah, it was that kind of work. Gotcha. So Clapton was one of the clients, and uh, these were in the, you know, it's the 70s, so I mean, pretty much everybody's drinking and Sure. Doing all these different things that <laughs> are highly unrecommended these days. Yes, yes. And I did a few tours, uh, did a couple of tours, got taken to America when we had Muddy Waters opening for us, which was mind-blowing. Wow. And I became Muddy's lighting guy because they didn't they, you know, they didn't have anyone. And at a certain period, Eric lost all the band, that, what we called the Tulsa band, which was the 461 Ocean Boulevard band. You oh, know, okay. All those guys. Uh, Carl Radel, Dickie Sims, Jimmy Oldacre, all sadly dead. George Terry, uh, Marcy Levy, Yvonne Element. Touring with them, we had great fun. Mm. Every, every night after the show, was back in a hotel having a party. We were coming up for a Japanese tour, and Eric had changed the whole band, consequently changed the crew. And a friend of mine who's since passed away, uh, Alan Rogan, who was Pete Townsend's tech, he was looking after Eric for a couple of weeks. Ah. I was in Japan. He had to leave. I said... I'd love to do it. Production manager, God bless him, gave me a chance. It worked out. And Eric and I were like this for 30 years. Wow. And had, um, I mean, how much guitar had you played at that point? Me? Yeah. Oh, I mean, I'd worked with local bands. I knew what a guitar was. I knew how to string one and stuff. But okay. really, uh, there's so much on offer nowadays with internet, YouTube, every kind of medium out there to, to learn everything from beginner to virtuoso. But with me, it was just books, you know, and somebody showed me a couple of chords. Mm -hmm. But the main reason I wanted to play guitar is because of my writing. I mean, I've always written a lot of lyrics, a lot of songs, done nothing with them. Uh, anyone listening, I'm open for offers <laughs> yes. to co-write. And it was really as a vehicle. Then when I got the gig, I had to step it up a little bit, sure, learn, yeah. learn a bit more, learn quickly. Um, he was a good guy to work for. You know, he wasn't uh, no prima donna stuff or anything. And we were together, as I say, tight as two peas in a pod for 30 years. But in the business, you know, there's like any other thing, there's politics and there's all that yeah. kind of stuff. I, I fought for him. I fought his corner. I never told any of the stories. I never said anything about anything. I, mm -hmm. I did what I was supposed to do, diligently, loyally, never missed a gig. And uh, then some other people kind of got involved. Occasionally, I would be a little, um, I can't think of a suitable word, not boisterous, but when you work, sometimes you get given a couple of idiots to work with. You maybe shout at them or something. Yeah, yeah. And I, and I'm a, being told I'm a larger than live character. So 
one thing led to another, and Eric said he had to let me go, and that was uh, very, very hurtful. So then we moved out to Louisville. I took a year off just to sort of adjust to it, sure. thinking about it. And I was very resentful initially, but after much thought, you know, I could never have done any of it without Eric, you know. Sure, yeah. So mm-hmm. I, he, he opened so many doors for me, gave me a wonderful life. So it's just sad that the way it ended, you know, it was like a, a like a divorce rather than a being sacked. You sure, know? yeah, yeah. It sounds like a great story, just your experiences. Yeah, so um, coming from... Coming from Scotland and being all of a sudden, you know, one minute I'm watching the Beatles on television, the next minute I'm in George Harrison's house. You know, it's like it's uh, it's a lot to take in. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So my question is, or my my thinking about how you what your job was, you pretty much ran the deal. I mean, you set everything up. You, I, I believe that you were t- you were saying at one point in time that you picked the guitars that were going to go out on on the uh, tour. Yeah, well, I mean, the the guitar player, obviously, you get to know them, you know what they want to play. Everyone on the road had their own guy, you know, there was a keyboard tech, bass tech, and sometimes I'd fill in for him. All I did was look after Eric, and Mm -hmm. um, I think what you're referring to is we'd be maybe going on a, a big tour, maybe North America or something, you know, following on to Japan, and I'd say to him, you know, what do you want to take, you know, and he'd go, well, just a couple of strats and acoustic. And I'd go, you sure that's it? And he'd say, yeah. Then I'd go to the warehouse and I'd I'd sit and I'd look at the set list and I'd think about songs he potentially might want to do. And I'd fill up another two or three cases of guitars. That'd be another <laughs> dozen guitars or so, you know, Gibson L5s, old Gibson Birdlands, Les Pauls. And I found that eight times out of 10, every time, you know, We'd be quarter way through the tour or halfway through the tour or, or sometimes a few nights in and he'd go, you know, I really want to do somewhere over the rainbow, man, but I can't do it without the L5. And I'd go, well, I've got it here. And he'd go, oh, you got it? Oh, great. <laughs> and the first couple of times he said, why did you bring all these guitars? I said, trust me, because you'll want them. You know, and the production manager used to be bitching at me saying, oh, man, you've got all these cases. You know, what are we going to do with all these cases? And I said, put them with the rest of the cases. And inevitably it happened all the time. You know, he'd say, oh, man, I was going to do the tore down tonight but i need the 335 and i'd go well we've got the 335 we can do whatever you want and that's the way i dealt with it so i i Mm. it may seem rude that i ignored him but just through knowing what to do and knowing the gig and knowing the artist that he would want those things so we may have carried them for 20 30 shows before those cases were opened but when he wanted the guitar his guitar it was always there there you go so you had to be a mind reader too and yeah just no just to you know just always thinking ahead and Mm -hmm. And uh, as I said, production manager go, we carrying these cases around. I haven't seen you open them yet. I go, well, you will, you know. And then he, Eric, would sort of come rushing in and go, man, I really want to do such and such, but I need a, I need that strat tuned up to half. And I go, it's okay, we got that, you know. So there was never anything that he asked me for that we didn't have. Nice. And uh, and then when you work for an artist for a long time, you know, the, you you get to know what kind of candy they like, you know, what they where they like their drink, what kind of picks that they like, you know, what kind of chewing gum they like, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, when Eric smoked, for instance, I'd, I would always carry Zippo. It had to be Zippo fuel, Zippo flints, Zippo, everything Zippo, you know, stuff like that. Then uh, fountain pen ink, the most bizarre selection of things that <laughs> may be required by the guitar player. Yeah, so that was that's how that came about, you know, with me just saying, I, I, know, what, I know what we're going to need and I'm not going to take a chance that we're not going to have it, so I'm taking everything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So really, so really, the job too is also to make make the artist comfortable. Like whatever, like they don't even have to think. You're doing everything for them. Whatever they, whatever they would want. Boom, you've got mm. it there for them. That's uh, generally the idea, you know. Mm. 
the whole essence of it at that level and at any level really is that you know whatever they do during the day whether they're shopping sleeping swimming spas whatever they're doing they don't have to worry about anything then they're transported in luxury to the venue taken into a luxury dressing room filled with all the drinks and stuff that you could possibly want everyone's favorite food they're relaxed all they got to do is walk up the stairs we hand them the instruments the rest is done to them but if you let them it's like the it's like a racehorse is maybe a good analogy you know if you take <laughs> care of them enough once you once you open the gates and they go it's out of your hands you know that's yeah. uh, but they, they they require that degree of uh, finesse and that degree of looking after you know mm-hmm. and yeah. so always knowing what they what they what they think what they want to do or what they're going to ask you for that kind of stuff and obviously when when you get to work with an artist a long time you know you pick all that kind of thing up yeah yeah did did you ever have a DEFCON five moment where like something just blew up on you and you had to like you know you had to jump in and fix it like right that second? I did, yeah, and it was uh, I think it was in Michigan. It was in a one of those what we call sheds. You know, there are sort of what the modern terminology I think is amphitheater, but we right. called them sheds. And it, it was incredibly torrential rain, so the rain was running down the aisles. There was water all around the bottom of the stage, and incredible humidity. And his guitar stopped working, and we had the stage set that meant I couldn't go directly to the amp to see what the problem was, and I switched guitars. And it didn't work. So that makes me think it's got to be the amp. Meanwhile, the band are all standing there. The crowd are getting pissed off, you know. And we later found out when I went to a third guitar in sheer desperation, it worked. And I knew then what it was. The two guitars, old strats that I had, I'd had them uh, grounded on advice from a friend in London with this stuff called New Metal, NU. And uh, somehow the humidity had loosened the adhesive that, uh, that attached the grounding to the cavity of the pickups and caused some kind of short. And I'd only had it done on two guitars, and those were the two guitars. When I got him to the third guitar, set was back on again. And he said, man, what happened? And I said, well, I explained it to him. I said, uh, you know, obviously you go for a guitar first, amp second, then I had to go through that process again. So that was, uh, yeah, that was uh, the, the worst I ever had with him, I think. It was very rare, you know, because if we have a spare, you know, we always had spare amps, spare, bust a string, have another guitar. Amp not working, have another amp, you know. So that was just, and it was in a night where all the, everything went wrong. The weather was terrible. The humidity, the fact that we couldn't get to the amps easily, we had to run around to the side of the stage back and forth. I think the band eventually came off for a few minutes. Eric said, I can't stay out there, you know. Mm-hmm. It was really only a few minutes, but it seems much longer when you're. <laughs> I'm sure once that got, second thirty thousand people looking at you. Yeah, when the second one didn't work, now you're thinking, "Uh oh." Yeah, <laughs> and that's what it was. It was uh, just caused by this strange grounding thing. Mm. Say humidity loosened the adhesive. It all got kind of mangled up, shorted out, something. Yeah, that was the worst. Uh, that was a nightmare. But you know, the rest of the time it was pretty good. Excellent. <laughs> Hi, this is Steve Hackett, and you're listening to The Ugly American Werewolf in London. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house, and my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. 
With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode. Available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind, and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. I want to hear about some of the epic tours. Well, they were all epic in their own way, you know, but we, we got to do... We got to do some amazing things, you know, like going to touring and doing gigs in Israel and stuff like that. All the tours were epic. Uh, the, the, obviously, the the George Harrison tour in Japan. Was, yes, was that's what I want to hear about. Yes, that was George. You know, George wanted to go and play, but the, at the time he was very, you know, we hadn't been playing much. Yeah, we hadn't been playing live, and he was very reluctant because of the, you know the constant Beatles thing all the time. And Eric's then manager, Roger Forrester, and I must just give this man a special mention because one of the great, great artist managers, rock managers of all time, a wonderful, wonderful man with a great sense of humor. He suggested various things and we'd get a call, right, we're going to do the States. Okay, no, George doesn't want to do it. Yada, 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 fast forward, a few of those things got cancelled. And eventually they thought, well, let's, how about Japan? And George said, yeah, Japan might be cool. So... We uh, we went into rehearsals at uh, down in Windsor in a film studio, and I was the only guy there. So the other guitar tech, uh, my friend Alan Rogan, who I mentioned earlier, since passed, was going to take care of George, but he was out with the Who at the time and couldn't uh-huh. make the rehearsals. Someone else was missing, the security guy. So I eventually I had to leave the house at like five in the morning to get there at seven. Andy Fairweather Low had about 10 guitars. George kept bringing in guitars. He had 10 or 12 guitars that he was trying. And Eric had shit with tons and tons of guitars, you mm-hmm. know, to get everything ready. So that when they walk in the door, everything's ready to be picked up in, in, uh, with a capo on it or with the various tuning. That's another thing. Capo. It is a capo. It is not a capo. It's not a capo. Oh, you heard it here first, folks. Look, everything that's spelt with capo, capo de tutti, capo de monte, capo de china, you know, it's capo. Capo is C-A-P-O. There's no E in it. But for some reason in America, it's like tomatoes, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, they, they all say, hey, man, 
you get me a capo? <laughs> and I go, no, I, I don't have any capos. Well, what's that? That's a capo. Anyway, a small point. Um, so I had to have all these guitars, various tunings, all that kind of stuff, 12 strings all ready for them. And I did the first two weeks of rehearsals just on my own, uh, you know, getting up at five every morning. And it was spectacular because the humor was great and George was feeling good and it wasn't too far for any of them to travel from their country estates. And turned out to be the rehearsals were amazing and the tour was just so well received, so incredible. The Japanese are so such a wonderful audience, you know, such a respectful audience. And didn't give him any, uh, didn't give him anything but love. Yeah. <laughs> and during, I must tell you this, this is a, a great story. <laughs> I've never told this one. During right. the tour, there was going to be a tour book, you know, that they specifically designed around that tour for uh, publication by Genesis Publications, a very, very famous English company that do these very high end uh, artist kind of books. Okay, nice. George Harrison live in Japan. So, you know, the book with like coffee table books. And we were told each, every, every single person on the tour would do a chapter. And I got to do a chapter. So at the rehearsals, we were doing this, or I was doing this parody of the, there was two guys called, uh, God, I can't remember their exact names. There were two comedians and they were doing a parody on the show of 1960s DJs, okay, English DJs, you know, which is all very, oh, yeah, pop-tastic, mate. Oh, wacko. Yeah, groovy, babe. Yeah. That kind of thing, you know. So I assumed I just took on one of these characters. And every day I would say, and now it's time to play one of our all-time favorite pop hits of all time. And every day it would be a different artist, but the song would always be Call Me Wanker. <laughs> You know, I just said what came into my head. So, you know, people, George would be standing there and I'd be go up to the mic and they'd go, check that mic. And I'd go, I'd do the routine. And and one day he said, he said to me, he said, hey, Lee. I said, what, man? He said, what's all this stuff about, you know, call me wanker? What the, what's, that, what's it about? It's really, really stupid. <laughs> and I said, well, I said, it's just this, this thing that we all laugh at, you know. And he said, but I don't get it. And I said, well, I tried to explain it to him. And he said, oh, I see. He said, but man, it's so stupid. And I, I never thought anything more about it. So come the end of the tour, blah, blah, blah. After the tour, we all get our books. And uh, he did two great things. He wrote in everyone's book, thanks for writing the best chapter. So that everyone, nice. when they opened the book, they went, oh, I wrote the best chapter. That was one <laughs> way he got us. And then he, he wrote in my page, he said, Lee, thanks for, uh, for everything. Thanks for a great job. It was wonderful. And then he just wrote at the bottom, wanker, <laughs> which is an insult, you know. And I said to him, I said, thanks for the book, man. And he said, uh, I said, but what, what does that, what's the wanker thing about? He said, you know, that thing you kept doing at rehearsals, call me wanker while I'm calling you wanker. <laughs> Wonderful, and that was that's how I got that in my book. Because I show it to people, they go, "Why did he call you wanker?" I've got to tell the story. Yeah, yeah, tell the story, and now we've heard it. Yes, the George Harrison story. That's the first time I've ever ever told that story publicly or anywhere. Maybe I mentioned it to, to my wife or something once, but sorry, that's about the first time. Now, so now we have an authentic John Lennon story firsthand from Terry Reed. An authentic George Harrison story, firsthand from Lee Dixon. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, George is, uh, God bless him, is such a, he had a wicked sense of humor, but he really was, uh, you know, it's, it's well documented uh, what an incredibly spiritual person he was. How right. He got it, he, you know, he got it figured out. He didn't go down the, the rabbit hole that so many others did. Mm -hmm. um, and, I mean, just to, to hang with him and to be with him a few times in my life, a couple of times at parties at Eric's or, you know, one time I went down to the house with a guitar for Danny, his son. Mm -hmm. And uh, that and uh, that was another great one. He said to me, um, 
he said, you know, very, it's just like, you know, there's no razzmatazz. He's the guy in his garden and clothes and he's working in the garden. He'd come in, you know. Yeah. He said, want a cup of tea and all that, sitting in the kitchen. He's chatting away. He's going, oh, thanks for bringing the guitar down. I said, oh, that's cool. I hope he likes it. It was the, one of the Eric Clapton strats when the first signature series came wow. out. And I said, man, I said, I was I, I was down here once, you know, at a party, but only for, you know, half an hour. Every time we got here, it was all finishing. And he said, do you want to have a look upstairs at the guitars and stuff? Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, man, of course, you know. So I go up to the the studio and there's the there's Rocky, you know, there's a psychedelic strat and there's the you know the 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 Gibson acoustic J45 he played to the Beatles and there's the 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 Gretsch Jet that he played most of the time and I'm like and he looked at me and he said uh Hey Lee, you're not another one of those Beatle nuts, are you? <laughs> and I said George, I'm afraid so. <laughs> I hate to admit it, but yeah, he said, I'll leave you to it then. And he just left me in the room for a while with the guitarist just uh, Mm. while he went and made a couple of calls. And that was, uh, that was just like so special for me. And I have a few George stories, but not enough time to tell them all. I mean, just, there's quite a few. No, that's great though. Maybe we'll get them another time. But on that tour, it was basically the same band that Eric had for the journeyman tour, right? With like Steve on the drums and. Uh, I can't even remember who, who played. Was it Gad on drums? Steve Ferroni. Oh, Steve Ferroni. Yeah, I'm thinking, when you said Steve, I'm thinking Gad. Yeah. yeah, we had see. See, we had three Steves. We had Steve Ferroni, then we had Steve Gad, mm-hmm. then we had Steve Jordan, who's since uh, gone onto the Stones. Stones, right, right. So yeah. when they say Steve, it throws me a little bit. Yeah, Ferroni, monster. Yeah, it was pretty much that band and Ray Cooper. I think was Ray, on that tour. And all it was was. Uh, you know, just Eric saying, "Here's my band. You mm-hmm. don't have to worry about anything. The, the band's provided. All you got, we just got to go to Japan, play a few shows, have some fun, play the George songs, yeah, and and do the George stuff. And it was just wonderful. I mean, just it was very emotional. And uh, for me, you know, sort of growing up with them and and being a fan and stuff sure. like that. And uh, Nathan East, Nathan East was bass player in that band. I believe I Nathan was playing there. Yeah, yeah, the most recorded bass player in history. I I believe. Yeah. So like. 5,000 records or something like that. He's a Nathan East, uh, one of my dearest friends, and a man who is a workaholic, a man who is on everything and is asked to be on a lot of stuff, you know, because he's he's just a go-to guy. And he's such, you couldn't meet a nicer guy. I've never, I've known Nathan 20 plus years and I've never seen him not smiling, never. Well, come to think of it, neither have I. But then he's always playing when I'm seeing him, whether yeah. it's with Clapton or Toto or whatever, your foreplay, whatever. He has a massively, a massively diverse uh, career, uh, does Nathan, with the, I mean, he played with Daft Punk, you mm-hmm. know, he played with Toto, he played with Eric, he played with the Jazz Cats, you know, mm-hmm. he's, he's Michael Jackson, uh, Quincy Jones, all those kind of cats, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Plus hundreds of others that I couldn't even begin to remember, but wonderful, wonderful player. So uh, you know, George had that great band and uh, tons of time to rehearse. And we took it to Japan, and mm-hmm. they were just so incredibly appreciative of it. You know, as I mean, if we'd gone to Madison Square Gardens, I'd love to have seen it in the garden. You know, mm. uh, where I've done many, many, many shows, but it wasn't to be. We we could only go to somewhere where he felt comfortable, and out of it came that great record and the book. And my title of uh, Tommy Banker. Nice. <laughs> well, and so if you look in that red frame thing there, that is a drumstick at Steve Ferroni's drumstick that I caught in the third row on the Journeyman tour in Cincinnati. No, no I got uh, <laughs> picks were my thing, you know, and, and it was a, it was a, 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 I really didn't ever intend it to be like that. But pick collectors were never around until the 80s. It seemed to start up 80s, 90s. 
And all of a sudden, everybody's a pit collector and mm-hmm. they're only wanting to show you the collection. And what I did was we had a wonderful relationship with a great company called Ernie Ball. Sure. And um, Sterling, the Ernie's eldest son who ran the company at the time, I'd, I could call him up from Japan at three in the morning and say, look, man, I need I need some new picks. I was always on the, things would somebody would say something. I go, right, that's an idea for a pick. So on a tour, you know, most people would get four or five thousand picks made for the tour. I would only I never wanted to be abusive about it. So I would only get them done, done in like 50 of these, 100 of those maybe mm-hmm. because it would change by the next week. I'd come up with something else. And they were kind enough to always do that as a result. I think there are more Eric Clapton picks out there than anyone's. As far um, as different styles? And as stuff. far as different sayings, different styles, different uh, in-jokes, everything mm-hmm. I would say. what well, I mean, because when I look at them now, the collection that I have left, dear Lord, there's hundreds and hundreds of different sayings. <laughs> and, of course, we had the, the sad thing about the George tour, the only regret was, and I really pissed off about this one, I had all these George Harrison picks made specially for the tour. And I'd also had George picks made for the Wilburys. Yes. And I found out later that, you know, George would go to one tech and say, hey, I need some picks for the Wilburys. And then he'd maybe go to someone else say, we need some Wilbury picks. <laughs> so my my Wilbury picks were different from someone else's, basically. Yeah, they. Uh, I'm, t- I'm trying to think where I was going with this. Well, you must have a collection that's unreal. Massive, massive, massive collection. And th- things will say, there'll be stuff on them that people don't understand. They'll go, like, for instance, people were always saying, I, I want to uh, give me a pick. Give me a pick. Uh-huh. That was all I ever heard. Hey, man. Guitar guy, man, give me a pick, dude. Yo, man, clapped and rules. And I, I, yeah, okay, and I try and give out as many as I could. And then this pick collecting thing came in, and because I'd had them unintentionally made in small quantities, they were highly desirable all of a sudden. But one I remember, there's hundreds of them, but and I'd have to explain the meanings of them. But one that's simple was I got so fed up with it, I just got I called up Ernie Ball. Mm. And I said, make me, give me a, a two hundred picks that just say a pick on either <laughs> side, you know, and they yeah. just a pick. I said, yeah, a pick. a pick. And then I'd give them out to the fans and, and I'd get I'd get some other guy going, you know, from New York going, hey, man, where does it say Clapton? I want a Clapton pick, man. And I go, that's what he played with tonight. He played with that those picks. Yeah, but there's no AC on it, man. And I go, well, that's because it's a pick. You know, it's a, people say, give me a pick. You asked me for a pick. Yeah. I said, what did I give you? A pick. I said exactly. Good night. You know that's it. You have great voice talent. You know that. Oh yeah, that's uh, that's something else. I'd love to. Uh, I mean, I I really do, and I'm not being big-headed about it, but I really do, and uh, I'd love to use it or utilize it in some kind of voice work or something of that ilk. You know, be great. Guitar playing is not mine, but um, you know, doing voices and accents are is spot uh, big on. Thing. The, the George Harrison Liverpool accent was great. Yeah. My, yeah, my George is not too bad, but it's, why do you keep saying that? Call me wanker. It's stupid. It's really <laughs> stupid. Yeah. Great, great man. And talking to George, you know, the, that was the final concert, the concert at the Royal Albert Hall, the concert for George. That mm-hmm. was just, I mean, everyone was just so emotional. I mean, I've never been to anything like it. Just the love in the room, you know. And the evening opened with Ravi Shankar and his daughter, right? You know, doing all their thing in the Indian Orchestra before Olivia came out and talked to the crowd. And then, I mean, there was so many guys wanted to be in that band, you know. To oh be yeah, those literally hundreds of drummers, hundreds of guitar. Hey man, I got to play. I got to play. But the band was chosen not by me. It was chosen from friends of George's and people that he played with and who Eric wanted. And uh, obviously, they brought in Paul, you know, to sing too. Brian Paul and and Richie Richie playing drums was okay. great. And, um, and uh, Jeff Lynn certainly was there. But like you just mentioned, 
that you would have loved to see in the George show at MSG. One that did take place at MSG was when he toured with Steve Winwood in the 2000s. It was big for me. The Blind Faith song they did. Can't um, find my way home. Uh, it was the other one. Well, all right. No, no, no. It was the um, Presence of the Lord song. Oh, Presence of the Lord. That's yeah. what my wife and I danced to at our wedding. And I took her to that show. We saw the Columbus one, not MSG, but it was amazing. And when you when they, they filmed it for Madison Square Garden, when they did that song, because they trade lead vocals on that mm. song, and then eventually they sing it together, they kind of gave each other a nod, like, that was a good one. Or, you know, we know the difference between the, the good and the bad, and tonight that was good. Did, he, did either of them have any feelings about how well that tour came off or how well that night came off? Got to remember at this that point, you know, they're both very old, established artists. Yeah. You know, they're not young guys anymore. You know, Steve's just a pretty quiet guy, you know, uh, come in, love to have a cup of tea with his tech and practice in the dressing room. And it was just another great tour. You know, there mm-hmm. weren't there was no backslapping and going, weren't we fantastic tonight? Wasn't mm-hmm. that great? There was none of that going on because they not at that level. You know, the egos have, have gone. We just knew it was great and everybody wanted to see it. And not just because of the connotation of Steve and blind faith. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, when I was a young boy in Scotland, um, we were uh, we were just so enamoured by all that all the music, you know, the, especially Eric and Cream and all this kind of stuff. And then Blind Faith came along and blew us away. In fact, my friend and I formed a tribute band called Blind Drunk, but uh, <laughs> we never ever did any gigs. <laughs> Can't imagine. <laughs> but yeah, that was a lovely tour. Winwood gentleman and a scholar yeah so um that was another wonderful tour and that was my last tour 2009 we finished at my pet hate gig in america which is the hollywood bowl as i call it oh yeah not the hollywood bowl i just never ever i always had something terrible happen there on the two or three occasions i was there and unknown to me that was my last gig and then uh you know i came back home and the paperwork arrived and Mm -hmm. the lawyers started and all then it became uh, it's pretty not nice yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. That's all right. I mean, like I said, it was uh, when when you have to deal with all these people uh, at some point in your life, it's nasty because they're all a, f- a feeling like a kick in the guts, you know, after mm-hmm. so many years of loyalty. But hey, it worked out. Um, Eric's still playing. I wish him good health, good luck, lots of love, and uh, and thank him for the the amazing life he gave me. Really. Hi, this is Gary Kemp. And this is Guy Pratt. And you're listening to the Ugly American Werewolf in London podcast. (laughs) What about, God, there's so many. I mean, I could ask you about the Arms concert. I could ask you about Live Aid. I kind of want to see, did anything change after Unplugged? Because before that, Clapton's already a legend, right? He's already in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He's already sold 100 million records. He's already, you know, got the big box set, everything else. And then that comes along with the fact that the Tears in the Heaven wasn't on a Clapton album. It was on the Rush soundtrack. And then here it is, basically the exact same thing. But then also some rework, Derek, and the Domino stuff, some some acoustic stuff. And the thing goes blockbuster big, diamond selling big, six Grammys big. Did anything change after that or was just more of the same? I think his bank bank account improved considerably. Yeah, no doubt. (laughs) And I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that. At that point, really, uh, Eric, although he had, was already, already an established bona fide legend in the the guitar playing community right. and 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 through his peers and things like that, he wasn't really. Um, was he? I'm sure he was chuffed about it, but he kind of taken well, the strap. His career was kind of like that at mm-hmm. the time. You know, he was still big and was still touring and everything, but he wasn't like massive. And that record, mm-hmm. as you correctly say 
just sold and sold and sold and, and is still selling. Mm-hmm. And it, I think maybe not the first unplugged, but if it was one of the first couple. Easily the biggest. And um, by far the biggest. And then, of course, everyone got into it. You know, everybody did it from, uh, I think, Elton, Nirvana, right. Crosby, Stills. Yes, everybody. everybody. Uh, and that record, just recorded in, in a film studio in front of an invited audience, went on to be his biggest selling record. And, of course, you know, the, the tears in heaven thing and all that. Mm. And, you know, the, the things I didn't like, like I called it lounge Layla, you know, you know, but it was different. And, you know, I wasn't, um, I wasn't uh, uh, sitting in the audience. I was working. So keep my opinions to myself and uh, off they went. And it was a massive record. My personal well, favorite records of Eric's and in, in the period of, you know, uh, I mean, I worked on a lot of the albums too, nearly all of the albums, but two of my, particular favorites were records that his fans didn't really like he had a new producer guy called simon climey who uh, they had they had initially gotten together to do some uh, project for giorgio armani you know some music and eric was really interested in this this uh, initial kind of uh, hip-hop and sampling and pro tools it was all just coming out and Simon was a, a young guy and, and very, you know, much younger than the, the, the phenomenally great legendary producers that we've been using, the Russ Teitelman, I mean, Tom Dowd, I mean, guys that are just legendary as, uh, for what they do. And Simon was an unknown quantity. And this record came out and uh, they did this music for Armani. Then they did a record that very few people know about. The band was, Eric wanted the band to be called uh, TDF, Totally Dysfunctional Family. <laughs> and the record uh, was called uh, Retail Therapy with a graffiti cover. Yeah. He didn't want it. He didn't want it. Eventually found its way into the Clapton bins and record stores, but he didn't want it at the time. He wanted it to stand alone. So let's just do this and see. Don't tell people it's mean. See what it goes like. And it's one of my favorites. I mean, it's a lot of clever stuff on there that uh, he and Simon did. Oh, you know, samples and sampling and stuff like that. And then, of course, the only downside to the Pro Tools thing was we weren't using tape any tape for backup. But all of a sudden, you could play a thousand guitar solos, which gave you too many to choose from. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Reptile and Pilgrim, really? Yep. And before that, August, everything he's done since. And I'm not being sour grapes here, but everything he's done since Reptile and Pilgrim, and even the, a lot of the fans say it's, it's you know, it's really struggling. You know, it's like sure. it's not, it's not his, his strength. And he was never a great writer. You know, he wrote a couple of great songs, but he wasn't a consistent writer. I don't think, even by his own admission, I think. But um, yeah, those records, people were going, oh man, it's really different. And that's what I liked about them. August was they yeah. took they took him into different territory and. Uh, encouraged them to write and and write songs that could be under that kind of banner of modern, you know, mm-hmm. sampling hip hop stuff, sort of stuff. Well, that's interesting. I mean, he always he, he always tries something and come back to the blues, right? I mean, he well, he, he's, he, he's he a tried, blues guy his whole life, right? You know? He tried country, but then he come back to the blues. He, he tried, you know, pop and come back to the blues. The album he made before August, Behind the Sun. With Donald Duck done, and it it went, it did well. It went platinum. It had some hits on it. With She's waiting and others. And but then the next year, August comes out, and it's different. He doesn't just want to sit. He never wanted to sit in one place. I have a friend in Nashville called Ryan Warriner, who's a phenomenal guitar player. His dad is a very famous country artist called Steve Warriner. And when Ryan came to join the band that I currently work for, Gary Allen, he was 
man, he said, I used to come and see the shows and you'd be up there, you know, made me feel really old. But we both sat down one day and he said, tell me, man, what's your favorite Eric record? And I said, I got to tell you, probably August. And he went, me too. Really? Yeah. And he's he obviously can play Eric. You know, most of these guys can play all the blues and do all that kind of stuff. But Eric's, uh, his whole thing was initially the blues, yep. uh, henceforth the Yardbirds, and then on to John Mayo and, and, and looking for different avenues. And he, as you say, he always returned to that uh, to that particular genre. You know, you know when we do, we do live shows, and when you're listening to the same set every single night, you really hope that they're going to change it up tour to tour. But that was one of Eric's. He go, go into a thing of uh, just we just wanted to play a certain amount of songs, and someone would say, one day we all sat down at rehearsal. He said, "Right, everybody, write down a song," and I wrote down two or three. So, but he gets about sixty songs. Give him, and he goes, "Nah." Wrong key. No, I can't do that. <laughs> no, I can't do that one without so and so. No, I can't do that. And it came down to it would just so it'd have a thing in the set, blues and sea every night. And there was so many great blues songs he could have chosen, but he always did Robert Johnson or ninety nine percent of the time. Mm. Robert Johnson, the little Queen of Spades. And even though it's a brilliant piece of music and the the the, the playing is is superb, you're just hearing it every night, you know, and it mm. loses its magic. And every night, blues and see what we're going to do. Little Queen of Sweden. <laughs> but that's just, you know, if you're working for a band, you, you have highs and lows. You know, the songs that you like and the songs that you don't like, you know. Right. Of course. Uh, I was fortunate enough that most of the stuff was just amazing and he would resurrect uh, things occasionally. That's right. You know, just so many great things. I mean, I I did a, a, a radio interview for a, a guy in Florida a couple of years ago, a couple of interviews he did with me. And I just wrote a bunch of stuff down. And I, and I started looking at it, and I brought it with me tonight, and just to run through things like done gigs. I've been at the White House, played two gigs at the White House, Buckingham Palace, the Kremlin, done over 125 shows at the Royal Albert Hall, <laughs> certainly done 40 or 50 at Madison Square Garden, toured wow. most of the, the you know, we didn't never went to India, unfortunately, but, you know, we toured, uh, we went to... South Africa, you know, we went to South America, we went to all over America, all over Europe, everywhere we could go and always trying to find something new to do. So it was interesting. But, you know, there's the cream shows at Royal Albert Hall and Madison Square Gardens, doing the Riding with the King with B.B. King, mm -hmm. the Crossroads shows, the Rush movie with Greg Allman, Lethal Weapon with the great Michael Kamen. You, you look at any movies. And you know, we know Michael Kamen, yeah. Michael and I were real tight. I mean, a lovely, lovely genius of a man. Yeah, very talented man. And everything. He was on every movie soundtrack. He was on everything. And uh, they met during, during a thing called Edge of Darkness for the BBC, which is not a very well-known series. It was really, really... But Clapton did the music for heavy it. Heavy duty, him and Michael, yeah. yeah. Uh, then there's the Live Age, and then, you know, we took a band to Japan once where uh, Elton John was the second piano player, guest piano player. Knopfler was the other guitar player. Goodness gracious. You know, we did one tour like that. The Bob Dylan shows at Madison Square Garden, which was just mind-blowing to me because all of my heroes were there. You know, Neil Young, Crosby, The Birds, McGinn, everybody like that, you know, were, were all there. The George in Japan tour, the concert for George. Lenny Kravitz and Eric playing a jam at the White House, which is just, you've got to see it. You've got to see this thing. It's spectacular. Lenny Kravitz and Eric at the White House. You know, the Legends thing, we went and did a jazz tour with Joe Sample, Steve Gadd, the great David Sanborn, and uh, Marcus Miller. And Eric, and Eric's not a jazz guy, but they went out and he adapted to that, you know. Hmm. 
the Crash of Castle Guitars, which were named by me, all the graffiti guitars that come out. The Christie's auctions, I did two massive auctions with all these guitars. And then there's other things I did. You know, I went to work on Quadrophenia, taking care of John Entwistle for a couple of weeks at Madison Square Garden. Oh, wow. Playing at the Apollo in Harlem, which was quite a trip with Albert Collins, BB, Buddy Guy, Jeff Beck. And I think I took care of four of them that day. Oh, wow. uh, four out of the five just there's just a few snippets you know of, uh, of of a massive massive career and that's just things i wrote down to try and you know trigger my memory when the guy was asking me questions sure yeah live aid obviously was a, a massive one and was he in philadelphia we were in philadelphia yeah, okay. phil collins was the only one that did both right but i figured he would have been in america versus yeah we england were, and that was just a i mean a, a sorry a spectacular day just an amazing uh just so much going on and mm-hmm. so much happening and uh, this thing being done on both sides of the Atlantic, the coordination, the the, the heat of the day, it was intense in, the, in Philadelphia. It was like 100 and something degrees. And I always remember at the end of every, I can't swear, but if I could, I would, everybody got up on stage. I mean, every, I thought the stage was going to collapse. You mm. couldn't see the musicians. You know, everybody was up on stage, security, attendants, car park attendants, mm-hmm. all the bands, everybody. And I could see Eric, and he's not one of the guys, he's, he's not like a kind of a guy that walks to the front of the stage to play. You know, he's, he just he does his thing. And I'm thinking, this is going to be insane. So the last minute I ran back to his amp, which was, way, you know, way behind him. He'd been pushed way back, and I cranked the amp. And I thought, you might not be able to see him, but you sure as hell going to hear him. him. Yeah. <laughs> and you do, uh, when you hear that big uh, uh, ensemble at the end uh, doing their thing. And they go, and somebody said to me, man, Eric sounds good. I said, yes, well, I turned him way up because mm-hmm. I, 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 I mean, if he's in amongst all those people and it doesn't cut through, it's going to be a nightmare. Right, right. Yeah, so tons and tons of great things. Making the Rush movie was a trip, you know. It was just him and I that went to do it. Really? Yeah, just him and I. And we went to do it in, uh, with uh, Lily Zanuck uh, of the, you know, Daryl Zanuck's wife. Okay. Who was the producer, director, producer, yeah. wonderful lady. And uh, that, was a, that was a trip, you know, doing a soundtrack to a movie. Mm-hmm. But then he's done other soundtracks to stuff and worked on other things. There's a great Irish film called The Van, The Van, that he plays on. And it's, incre- I mean, it's pricelessly funny. It involves, it's a guy, the van in question is like a catering van, like a, a grub truck, food truck. Gotcha. And it's in, it takes place in the year where Ireland qualified for the World Cup. And uh, you'd have to see it. It's just priceless. It's just incredibly good humor. And he did lots of other, I mean, tons of sessions we did for people, playing with other people, other people's albums. I mean, this was just a smattering of, of the stuff that I've done. The Chuck Berry thing was an amazing event, you know, when we did the Hail Hail Rock and Roll thing. With Keith. And- with Keith and Robert Cray and yeah. those guys, Joey Spampanato. And I think Jordan was, Steve Jordan was playing drums on that. Probably. And just to, you know, to be a part of that and to, this is Chuck Berry. I mean, I'm standing next to Chuck Berry. I mean, the, everybody talks about Elvis and all that, but the king of rock and roll but for me in terms of the driving beat is chuck chuck and no little doubt Rich- yeah chuck and little richard i mean mm-hmm. they're the for me they're the kings of rock and roll maybe jerry lee a bit but chuck berry was just like it was something it was a it was a force of nature you the know chords he played everything came out of that everything and i've tried to play that stuff for years I say I write. I play because I write. I'm not a guitar player per se. You know, I'm a very mediocre, really. But uh, that's only because there's so many great guys out there. But yeah, that was a trip to do. You know, just being at Berry Park and for the rehearsals and and hearing Chuck and and his demands and things like that. Uh, you know, <laughs> and we went to the. I always remember we went to the theater to do the show, and uh, there was a massive big dressing room. 
And so all the guys kind of gravitated towards that, you know, we'll all just share this room. Mm -hmm. And Chuck can have that, you know, that nice little room downstairs. You know, and Chuck came in and he looked at his room and he went upstairs and he said, he said, okay, I want this dressing room. <laughs> and and the and and the the organizers, the, I don't know, the director of the film, he's going, well, Chuck, you know, there's all these guys. He said, yeah, but I'm the star, and this is the star dressing room. I get the star dressing room, and everybody's like, yeah, whatever, Chuck, you know. So yeah, you had like you know, you're walking like down Chuck. a corridor, and there's uh, you know Keith Richards and Robert Cray getting changed in a ladies' bathroom, right. and <laughs> walked further down the corridor, and there's a broom covered with Eric and uh, and, and, and Joey Spampanato trying to get the jackets on because <laughs> that's the only place they could go to change. But it was, an, again, an inspiring thing to have been a part of. And although I'm not doing it anymore in that, at that scale on world touring, I mean, my track record and the stuff that I've done is, you know, Second to none. couldn't be bought, you know, mm -hmm. you just, just to be there, you know. That's amazing. One of the things that you brought up quickly was the uh, playing at the White House with Lenny Kravitz. Oh, yeah. And the story that I heard was that it was supposed to be an acoustic set only. And then Kravitz says, you know, let's play all along the watchtower or something. And you had the foresight to have the break in case of emergency strat on hand. Oh, totally. I mean, I said, what are we going to do? He said, I'm just going to do an acoustic blues. So we'll need a Martin and a, and a spare, you know, just in case it busts a string. And I said, yeah, okay. And that day, the first time I did it, it was an incredible, it was both emotional, both times for different reasons. The first time was the special Olympics kids. And that'll get, that'll put the choker in your voice right mm -hmm. away when you see all these kids there. You know? and yeah. It was an amazing emotional night. You know, they got to meet their heroes, uh, Bon Jovi, Sheryl Crow, they were all up on stage. But the second one was a much more organized event. And, and three things stand out for me. Al Green, who I'm a massive, massive fan of, uh, in the afternoon, he came in to do his rehearsal. At this point, Eric and everyone, you know, the major artists have gone, you know, he's one of the last guys to come in. And I'll get to the Lenny story just after this. And he did a, a Change Is Gonna Come gospel song by Sam Cooke. It was absolutely, I mean, hair, the hairs on everyone's arms were standing up vacuum. Like he just walked into the stage with a coat draped around his shoulders. And he said, said to the band, good evening, gentlemen. Are we ready to go? Let's run it. And he just did one take and that was it. And it was just magic. So fast forward or reverse rather to the afternoon and Eric's doing the acoustic blues thing and Lenny comes in and, and he's, uh, he, that is uh, such a killer band. I think Cindy was playing drums with him. Who's since married to Carlos Santana. And uh, obviously Craig Ross is, is ever present other guitar player who's a great talent. And, you know, Lenny and Eric are talking and stuff and he's going, man, we should do something. And Eric said, do you have, I'm just doing an acoustic thing. He said, I ain't got a strat. I ain't got my guitar. <laughs> and I said, well, as, as it happens, I do have a twin here and you're Strat. And he went, do you? Oh, wow. You know, like, great. Well, let's do it. And if you see the footage, it's Eric straight into a guitar. And that just, it's one of the best examples of his playing I've, I could ever, ever recommend to anyone. Because Jimmy at the time was using, you know, that was in the studio and he was using phasers and delays and wah-wahs and octave dividers and all kinds of effects on that. And you listen to that track and, People, people always say, where's the effects? What's he playing through? I said, straight in at the amp. And it's just that, that's what I tell people. It's, it's, you can go and buy all this stuff. You know, you can buy the exact same amp, the same strings, have me set it up, but you're never going to sound like him. Just like nobody's ever going to sound like Jeff Beck. Nobody's ever going to sound like Pete Townsend because it, the magic is the correlation between the heart, the hands, and the mind that mm. these people have this gift, you know, that they can, they just have this fluidity, this thing that they stamp on their playing. And that was one of the best solos I've ever, 
ever heard him play in 30 years. And the only thing about it, if you watch the footage, is Lenny's getting so into it that he gets too close to him. And Eric, if you, well, most people have ever went to see him, plays with his eyes shut a lot of the time That's when right. he's soloing. <laughs> and Lenny kind of just banged into him just a little bit, just touched him, they took him out of it, but he <laughs> kept on the guitar. <laughs> and that was only possible because, uh, you know, I had the Strat and I had the twin there. Mm. Although he told me to only take the acoustic. <laughs> <laughs> you just knew. Somehow you just knew. I just, you know, like when you're doing the job for a long time, you just know. You do know. Mm. If, if he said he was going into the studio, if we were going to Steve Winwood's to do something on Steve's album, I'd go, I'm just going to play acoustic. Well, I'd, I'd take two amps because it was way out in the country and I didn't have to have a spare. And I'd take a couple of strats and I'd take a slide guitar just in case, you know, mm. and a dobro. And he'd go, oh, we got that. That's cool, you know. So that's maybe why I lasted so long. <laughs> but you know as far as i'm concerned we had a great deal of love for each other and all i want to do now with the rest of my life is and i'm leaving it pretty late is to get into the find the, the right person to write songs with or find the, the guy that's a great player who needs lyrics hi this is jim mccarty of the arbors and you're listening to the ugly american werewolf in london when you mentioned you work with jeff beck you know, one night, Eric's not really afraid to follow anybody because he's Eric Clapton. But I saw him once at the Crossroads Festival. Jeff Beck plays before him. He plays Nessum Dorma, which is his like operatic thing. And Clapton is beside himself. Like he's like, what is he doing? What, what, how am I supposed to follow this? So he, then he goes out and sits down and starts with an acoustic. Guitar. So he's like, I'm just going to bring it all the way back down. Have you ever seen him like, I'm not following this man, or you got to put something else on in front of me? He was always in awe of the, the blues guys, you know, like if Buddy played with us, sometimes Buddy would come and play with us, or, uh, you know, occasionally Otis Rush and people like that. And those, those are Eric's heroes, and obviously you're in awe of your heroes. But he did his, when we toured Japan, it was another amazing tour, Jeff and Eric in Japan. Mm. And I was very fortunate that Jeff's tour manager, Peter Mackay, uh, supports the same soccer club as I do. I've known him since Dire Straits days. And we're at rehearsals, you know, and I'm standing behind Vinnie Gagliotta, who's my favorite drummer. I mean, there's there's great drummers, but um, Vinnie's just off the charts, you know, and I'm like, wow. Jeff uses side fills. A lot of artists don't use them anymore, but Jeff likes side fills. And he's doing a couple of songs that I like. So, And this was like, any ears were just kind of coming in to be popular, you know. And the, their monitor engineer said to me, you're a massive fan aren't you? I said, man, none bigger. And he said, I'm going to give you the spare pack. Have you got headphones with a, a mini jack? I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to, I'll do you a mix uh, of the of the live show oh. so that you can listen to it while you're setting up. And I said, well, that would be awesome. And then during the rehearsals, Pete Mackay said to me, just walk onto the stage with me. And I said, no, I mean, he's playing, you know, he said, but look, you, you'll get the full experience. And I stood in the middle of the stage. Jeff's a vegetarian. That was the thing we had in common. Very quiet guy. I mean, I, I worked with him a few times, met him several times, but wasn't, a, you know, you had to carry the conversation. Gotcha. <laughs> but uh, so I walk out in the middle of the station. It's coming through the side fills. And it's coming through his amps, and they're you know they're playing like I don't know where were you or something. Like that. And I'm just like I can't describe his tone or anything. It's beyond perfection. There's lots of great guys. I've got it. You know, Eric Johnson's got great tone. This young kid, uh, Chris Tone Ingram Kingfish, mm. is a mom. Uh, oh yeah, love oh, that just kid. Yeah, monster player feel mm. and stuff. But Jeff, what Jeff did, what nobody else did, you know, everybody else played the guitar. Jeff had all this, these techniques and touches. I mean, just like such finesse. And he never, you know, every album was different. Jeff never sat back on his haunches. He went in That's different right. directions all the time. Jazz fusion, prog, blues. He did it. Yeah. He, he never so so uh, we did a great tour called the Arms Tour. Uh, which was uh, action and research into multiple cirrhosis for Ronnie Lane, who was the bass player in the faces. And 
Well, great, great friend of us all, a wonderful character, sadly gone. We did it on both sides of the Atlantic. And at that point, Jeff had Jan Hammer in his band. Mm-hmm. I think Simon Phillips was playing drums. Right. Fernando Saunders was playing bass. Anyway, that was, and they were doing the pretty much the There and Back album live. And it was just, every night I'd go out to, the, I, I never leave my position, never leave my station, but every night I'd go out and listen to the, you know, the first five or six songs of Jeff set in the audience just to get it, you know. It's amazing. And he's been dead just over a year already. And uh, that was a massive shock to everyone because, yeah, he wasn't a crazy druggy or drinker guy. He was a quiet guy, he was healthy, vegetarian. And something just took him, you know. And it was a, a massive, uh, a massive loss. And you couldn't. He was inimitable. I mean, even Clapton and Gilmore, who know their way around strats. Gilmore would admit, I've tried to play the way Jeff Beck. No, no, I can't do it. It's, it's because of his. Is, is style and you know each guitar player learns from their heroes really or, or has influenced by people and although Eric was immersed in the blues and like the Stones were you know all the early blues stuff maybe to a lesser degree Jimmy Page but Jeff had all that but loved guys like uh, Gene Vincent's guitar player a guy called Cliff Gallup okay who was uh, one of his heroes. So Jeff could take this little nuances of other guys' stuff that you wouldn't even notice and incorporate it incorporate into his totally unique and individual thing. You know, the control of the tremolo arm, the touches, you know, the heel of his hand, mm-hmm. just pressing down on things, uh, you know, doing three things with, with his right hand, you know, plucking, playing and, and turning, you know, what we call bowing with a, you know, like a violin mm-hmm. on the, the volume knob up and down. And his, uh, it was just everyone's favorite guitar player. When we did the Ronnie Scott's thing in London, uh, Ronnie Scott's a very, very famous old jazz guy. He's probably in his 90s now. And that was with Vinnie and Tal Wilkenfeld on the bass, right? Yeah. And that was, we wanted, well, Jeff wanted to do something in London, but but where, you know, it's got to be intimate, but it can't be. And Ronnie Scott's was the venue. And you look around, I mean, I looked around that audience every night, and it was just nothing but guitar players. You know, everybody was in there. Jimmy Page, Robert Plant. Page, E. Plant. Well, you know, Robert's not a good player, but yeah, all those guys. You came to see him, yeah. And, uh, you know, Brian May, you know, everyone was in there. And of course, when it came Eric's, Eric's set turn to go up, they did a blues, you know, playing safe. Or they did two blues, I think, something like that. But just to hear Jeff in, the, in that intimate setting doing Where Were You and just watching him, where he's hitting harmonics and, the, and it has to be, I mean, there cannot be the width of a cigarette paper out or it's going to go, oh, or ah, you're going to hear it. Mm-hmm. Just those, and he, he holds the notes. A similar track is, uh, and probably my favorite Jeff track is called The Final Piece. It's from an album called There and Back. Okay. Uh, which is, again, probably my favorite Jeff record. Is that uh, early 80s? Yeah, yeah, kind of 80s. And his, his uh, tour manager at the time, Ralph Baker, told me, I said, that track is just, it just blows me away. He said, well, there's a funny thing that wasn't going to be on the record. You know, they'd finished recording. It was just uh, Jeff and the keyboard player. And Jeff just started playing the keyboard player, just, you know, brought in some string things, just little touches to play against. And it's the most emotional record. I mean, it brings me tears every time I hear it. It was amazing, just, wasn't it? It has everything, uh, you know, your little fast passages, and then this just this 
expressionist thing that only Jeff Beck had. And he was incredible. But I think what made the arms tour, I'll tell you right now, as after Jackson and I lived together in the mid nineties, I went to the blockbuster one day and found in the for sale because we've already played it enough for nobody's renting it anymore. Ben was this VHS of the arms tour. And I'm like, looking at the names on there and it's like Clapton Beck and page. I'm like, okay, well, I'll check it out. Didn't really know what it was, had to see it and then learn what it was all about the benefit for Ronnie and all that. At the end, they kind of have this thing. And I, I think they did it during Tulsa time where Eric and Jeff and Jimmy would trade. And it's what everybody had kind of waited to That's see. That's what they'd all been waiting for. It took the roof off Madison Square Gardens when Jimmy came out. And Jimmy was... Uh, he was in rough shape. He was in rough shape. You know, he was still kind of... He was like very skeletal and very, you know, coming down from what other, whatever things he was on at the time, you know. Uh, and that was, you know, Jeff knew what he was doing, Eric knew what he was doing. But when Jimmy came on, what you don't see in the footage is, you know, the rush on to, to clear all the pedals away and everything, Evan out of his way because he's he would come on and his cord would get caught around a pedal board and he'd be dragging it halfway across the stage <laughs> and he's sweating buckets. I do an amazing impersonation of him that night that Eric used to get me to do. And they were all kind of worried because, you know, because of his ill health. Uh, and I'm so glad that he's he's uh, reached 80 and he's a, a healthy, brilliant musician. He actually looks pretty been. good these days. Yeah, he looks great. But then, he, you know, he wanted to do it. And he came, I, I remember the first night at Madison Square Garden, he came on the stage. I mean, it was like maybe five minutes before the applause died down. And he was trying, you know, he had to take off a couple of rings and things like that and get his scarf sorted out and roll up his sleeve and he's just standing there and can't get this ring off and you see him messing around and then i mean jimmy could have jimmy could have taken a poop that night on the stage and they were going crazy yeah but also the significance of the yardbirds history eric jeff and jimmy all being in the yardbirds i mean jeff and jimmy were in the yardbirds at one time jeff playing guitar and jimmy playing bass before jimmy took over the guitar duties that's right and it was just that momentous thing that here's these three guys these three world famous guitar players who all came from this one band of this one common denominator and and here they are playing up on the stage together you know so it was pretty spectacular and the uh, and the love for ronnie and stuff alan and i again my friend alan i was talking about earlier we we used to take you know right you'd come on the side of the stage and you go what, what, what am i doing let's sweat him on come on now, let's go and uh, you know you'd take my arm i'd hold my arm tight and he'd, alan would take his other arm to get an emotional but it was a great thing to do but it raised a lot of money a lot of awareness mm. we did it in the royal albert hall and then we Took it to America, changed the band a little bit. I think Paul Rogers joined us in on the American leg. Right. Because I don't think he was in No, he didn't do the, the 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 other thing. And then of course it was great. Uh, great, great stories. You know, you've got like Charlie Watts there playing drums. You know, you've got Bill Wyman. You've got mi mixtures of all these great rock royalty of of, uh, of British artists. That's right. And and then the icing on the cake, the three guitar players. But Joe Cocker uh, came to do it with us. <laughs> and it was a wonderful, God bless him. It was a wonderful, wonderful moment. We've got like maybe, I think Charlie's playing drums. Maybe Kenny Jones is in there. Some of couple of drummers it's all set up and joe comes in and he's i think he'd you know been for a few cocktails to be kind and um everyone, hey joe and he's like oh, what are we gonna do you know and he gets sits up on the stool and as he gets up on the stool the stool goes backwards and before he sung a note he's completely trashed the two drum kits falling over backwards on the stool and nice. everyone's like oh yeah um, yeah right uh, just crazy memories that you have of, of these kind of uh events and the, the stuff at live aid i could tell you some great stories but after live aid but i Again, I dare say authorities wouldn't allow it. You're right. Well, Lee, we, we could talk to you for hours, literally, and we will most assuredly 
have you back sometime and maybe focus on a, a few other things. We, we really appreciate you sharing these stories of legends with us. It's really what our show is all about. Well, we only just touched, you know, we just a wee bit of the icing on the cake we rubbed off tonight. There's there's hundreds of things, and some of them, when I look at that sheet, it triggers other things of what happened that day and who played with who and what he was doing and, and all that kind of stuff. And like I say, I'd be happy to come back and, and continue our very interesting conversation and tell you some more stories. And in the meantime, anyone out there wants to help me write my book or write songs with me or use my amazing voice talents, mm-hmm. I'm available. And, and where are you on the road at all this year that you already know well i'm starting next week in nashville bander work we're having additions for a new guitar player and then we're going to have a break and then we'll have five or six days rehearsal and then we'll start touring for the year but 80 shows a year or something and i'll do that I love them. They love me. This country, it was very, very difficult to adapt to coming from the rock arenas and stuff. And, and all of a sudden you're playing in these bizarre places and rodeos and things like that. Right, right. But once you get into it, it's wonderful. And the great thing about the country artists is they all go and meet their fans. You know, the, I noticed that with, you know, guys like Eric and the, the bigger artists, Elton and stuff. It's like the cars are coming into the building, clear the building, clear the building. And nobody gives up, you know. <laughs> There's nobody there. There's no fans back there, but right. they do this all this hoo ha. Whereas country guys, they come off stage and either before they go on meet and greet or be after meet and greet. Not since COVID, but you know, it turned me on to a whole different appreciation of of what these guys do. And I was offered a lot of great stuff. You know, when people realized I'd moved to the stage, you mm-hmm. know, I was in, uh, you know, I was in the frame for several pretty big gigs. But again, it was that thing of signing up for two years and you're gone, you know, and I didn't want that anymore. I'd, I'd had enough of touring, you know, being away. I'd lost dogs. I'd, I can only imagine. My wife had suffered through it. And by that time, I'd been here a year and we had a whole bunch of dogs. And I just, you know, this gig came up and the guy said to me, well, we're called Weekend Warriors. You know, we mostly play at the weekends, two or three shows on your back home. I said, I'll give it a go. Yeah, sounds good. Mm-hmm. And the money was, uh, if if I was working more, would be just as uh, as good as I was uh, getting, I suppose. But you're only paid by the show in country, you know. You're not paid a salary or anything. Gotcha. And uh, I just stuck with it, and I've had some great times with these guys, and it's a great band to work for. Guys called Gary Allen hasn't had a number one for about five or six, seven years, but has had several big albums and stuff. He's a, a major country artist, and I love him, and they love me, and that's what I'm doing. Excellent. Well, I'm glad you're still doing it, and I'm glad we're neighbors now. I mean, apparently your wife lived on the same street that we ended up living on in London, and now that was the that was a very very bizarre coincidence. I've got lots of stuff that can't be told, but uh, I've got a lot of stuff that can be told, and you heard some of it tonight it's wonderful it's what I, I just uh one thing i i'd like to just reaffirm that i'm very very blessed and very very grateful to have had that career with eric i mm. wish it was still going on but you know it probably would have fizzled out at some point with me wanting to move to the states because karen wanted to move back here then he wouldn't have had an in-town guy which was crucial of course you know the past is the past and you just gotta get on with it and, and carry on but That's eternally right. grateful to him for all the great times we had and the amazing laughs and the stuff that i told you the stuff that we'd just go and do on our own like the almond brothers at the beacon mm-hmm. you know tour managers but no 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 just lee and i'll go you know or doing going to do the, the the rush soundtrack or things like that going to the white house not no production no production no tour managers none of that stuff just, just him and i because that's all we needed you know he that's did amazing. he acted my end he did his end and we always had a great time it was definitely for the better because now you're on the show with us so thank you yeah i'm sorry um you didn't get to ask too many questions but uh with me prattling on and uh, <laughs> every show nobody wants like to that. hear me talk anyway yeah. yeah, yeah, I found you very interesting. Well, thank you. Well, maybe we'll get some more from you on the on the the next next time we meet to do Sounds something. Sounds good. 
What a fun time we had talking with Lee Dixon. I know sometimes the audio might be a little different. Sometimes it was tough to keep old Lee on the mic. He's such a demonstrative guy. He wants to wave it around and, and really telling a story and, and showing us how it happened. I'm like, hey, can you just keep that in your hand and up close to your face? But it, it was great. It was so much fun. Where else can you get these firsthand stories of all these amazing artists of course, Eric Clapton, but George Harrison, oh my goodness, amazing. I doubt very much that this will be the last time we ever have him on our show because we have so many questions we could ask. We have so many stories about specific tours and specific events where we could really, really go down the rabbit hole. But where else are you going to hear firsthand stories about like Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page, George Harrison, all these people that we love. And he's got a great sense of humor. Those voices that he does, those impressions. Spot on, man. It's good stuff. So we thank Lee for being on. And I know he seems like it's a little bit of sadness there, not being with Clapton anymore in the way the relationship ended. But hey, he's with him for three decades, toured the world, got to meet extraordinary people, has a good life, and is still in the business. You country fans might be able to catch a glimpse of him working with Gary Allen today. So we want to know, guys, did we get something right? Did we get something wrong? Did we miss the point? Did we leave out your favorite part? Let us know. Email us. It's UglyAmericanWerewolf at gmail.com. You let us know the bands, the artists, the albums, the concerts, the DVDs, the books, the rock properties you want to hear us talk about here on the show. Make sure you download and subscribe wherever you get your podcast, guys. Downloads are the lifeblood of the podcasting industry and we need that to help grow the show to get more and better guests on and if you're thinking about it guys hey please go out and give us a five-star review on apple or spotify are probably the best but anywhere you get your podcast it just helps us find more rock fans like you and we're going to kind of continue the clapton journey next week with a review of one of his classic albums so you'll have to tune in for that until then thank you to pantheon podcast for making us part of the family thank you to our sponsor rarevinyl.com where if you use the code ugly you can save 10 percent off your entire purchase thank you for lee dixon for his warm and honest and fun stories and to all you rock and rollers all around the world be cool and keep doing what you do to keep rock alive It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett. 
Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 